Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, I'm joined by Simon Johnson, who is the Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at MIT uh, and a former chief economist at the IMF. Uh, he is co-author of two books, uh, 13 Bankers and uh, White House Burning, and a founder of the widely cited economics blog, uh, The Baseline Scenario. I am here to talk with him about his newest book, uh, Jumpstarting America, uh, which I have in my hand here, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream, uh, co-written uh, with Professor Jonathan Gruber, also uh, at the MIT, and, and who is known as the mastermind be uh, behind Obamacare and Romney Care. So it's a very brilliant book. We're going to talk about productivity, uh, innovation, progress, Silicon Valley, the debate about the great ta uh, tech stagnation, the future of science and scientific discourse uh, in America. So Professor Johnson, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Tiger. Uh, perhaps we can just dive right in. W would you mind giving us a, a brief overview about the many fascinating ideas that you have presented on this book? I know it's mainly focused on science and innovation. Right. And the, the book begins with the history, Tiger, of, of um, science and innovation and publicly funded research and development uh, in the United States, which was very small and, and really quite slight until 1940-1941, when because of the pressure of, of the global war that was then developing around the United States, uh, the view was taken by leading scientists and by the government that there should be a, a, an organized federal attempt to use useful scientific knowledge to develop uh, weapons and, and, and other offensive and, and defensive systems. And, and that was remarkably successful, including uh, radar, uh, which, which really transformed the Battle of the Atlantic, and of course, the atomic weapon, atomic bomb, which came directly out of that program. And after World War II, there, there was a, a realization, again, among the same sort of, let's call them elite uh, players, um, that science could be, and more science could be good for economic growth, it could be good for jobs, it could be good for shared prosperity. And the US uh, by the mid 1960s was spending 2% of GDP on publicly funded research and development, which was a lot then and, and it's a lot now because we've slipped since then, Tiger, we've fallen back from 2% to under 0.7%. And we have allowed many of these federal efforts to languish, we've become less good at connecting some of that innovation to commercialization and to job creation. And I think, frankly, we've all paid the price in terms of a productivity slowdown. Now, this is not the only factor by any means contributing to the widening inequality, but we think it also played a role there. And, and all we're asking for in the book and, and proposing is to go back to that 1940s, 1950s, early 1960s model, which worked well in the United States. And, and, and you, you're, you're at Princeton, I'm at MIT. Um, perhaps many of your other uh, members of your audience are at other very good universities. These are a really strong point uh, and strong places in American, the American economy and the American culture and, and in global innovation. So let's do more of what we're good at. And, and, and this time, let's also make sure the benefits don't flow primarily to people who are already well-to-do. And I, and I think the, there are some fairly simple ways we could make sure more people share in, 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 in this prosperity, including by spreading the research and development dollars around uh, the country a bit more. Uh, Professor Johnson, one statistic you just cited was that during the post-World War II era, the United States, uh, we saw this collaboration between private sector and federal government. There was a lot of funding going to fundamental science research, and it was that, that made up uh, around 2% of our GDP, whereas today that number is uh, below 0.7%. So we saw that dramatic decline. And, and uh, you talked about this, this idea that we have been overlooking the importance of government-funded support for science, and we turned into this idea of commercialization 
of inventions. Uh, would you mind giving us some examples of what the kinds of projects that we embarked on back then and, and a little bit more about the examples that we see today and, and the contrast of this mentality? Right, well, most of the, the, the new products and big breakthroughs of the post-World War II era can be traced back to some form of government support and, and government investment. So penicillin and the scaling up of antibiotics, absolutely. Uh, electronics, in, including computer chips, also definitely. As I said already, radar and most of, of microelectronics, for sure. Um, material science, a lot of the, obviously, atomic physics. You can go on down the list. And, and th th those efforts, those, those investments that were made, because of the spillover effects, because of the knowledge uh, that's generated from this kind of um, let's call it basic science, it had pervasive uh, and, 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 and massive and generally positive effects. Although we, we do have to, uh, of course, be aware there are unintended consequences, for example, in the development of artificial fertilizer and, and, and the, uh, the use of DDT, for example, as a pesticide. So on the whole, it's positive. On the whole, it has these big spreading effects. Um, it, it is relatively hard when you're doing basic science to uh, persuade private sector to fund that because uh, certainly, if, if the private sector is coming at this from a for-profit angle, which it obviously typically is, uh, the, the question is, how do we appropriate what is going to be created and how do we ensure that our investors get the benefits of the risks that they're taking? And that's hard with basic science. Um, and, and that's one reason why well, what's happened in the US is publicly funded R&D has declined. Private R&D has actually not declined. It's actually risen in recent decades. But private research development doesn't do the same sorts of things as the government is willing to support. And, and uh, that has undermined the productivity generation machinery, if you like, of, of, of the American economy. The Human Genome Project is a good modern example, Tiger, because in the 1980s, this idea was shopped around uh, by leading biologists to various venture capitalists who said, great idea, we'll learn a lot, but how do we make money off that? It's general knowledge that you're creating, and we can't uh, appropriate that. So it became funded by the federal government, and uh, you know, cost some uh, tens of billions of dollars, and re returns many times that each year. It's created an industry industry with 300,000 people, and I would say, on top of it all, a lot of the uh, most effective tactics and techniques we've had against COVID-19 have come from that industry. So just like in 1940-1941, a, a a more general scientific capacity that we built and, and some outstanding scientists were able to redeploy in the in the face of a new type of enemy um, and become helpful in, in the past 12 months. But I, I would suggest, uh, and I think we see this around us now, that as we begin to think about pandemic preparedness and, and other kinds of uh, resilience for the future, that, this set, that same industry and those same investments over the past three decades are going to serve us very well. Just to read a little bit about uh, what you uh, wrote in the book, not just penicillin, but also cortisones, other stero uh, steroids were created back then, uh, childhood vaccination, digital computers, uh, the examples really go on include uh, jet aircraft, satellites, all, th those were all a lot of the innovations that happened in the post-World War II era. And I'm glad you brought up uh, the human uh, genome project, which I'm sure we'll get into it in, in a bit. But before that, I, I think maybe it would be nice to kind of talk a little bit about the history of um, how Americans uh, history of funding science really began because there was this one key figure that you outlined in the book. His name is Avnevar Bush. I, I, I hope I, uh, I don't know if I pronounced the name right, but probably really butchered the name, but the, the bold vision really helped 
started the National Defense Research Committee, NDRC, before World War II, which became central to allowing the United States kind of leap in, in military tech and eventually win the war. And, and that bold vision also flourished on later to support more science funding. So maybe we can start with uh, that story. Sure. His friends called him Van Bush, and I think he didn't <laughs> mind too much. He's yeah. uh, long departed now, but I don't think he'd mind too much if we call him that. Yeah, so Van, Van Bush was an MIT engineer. He was, at the time the war was developing, head of the Carnegie um, Institution in Washington, D.C. So on applied science, and he had a lot of uh, connections into political circles. Um, I think Washington operated then very much as it does now, although uh, definitely on a smaller scale. Um, and Bush and his, uh, as I said, rather elite friends, so people who were running the major research universities of the day, um, became convinced that there was a lot of useful science that could be mobilized and applied to the war effort. And, and that's what they got um, support and funding from the federal government to do. Rough, I mean, some estimates suggest that maybe a third of all physicists in the U.S., uh, were working with for Bush uh, at one point uh, during the war. And their um, sort of marquee project, and the one that really made them famous, was radar, which strangely enough, and people um, have forgotten most of the story, but certainly from this angle, radar was initially uh, treated with some skepticism by the US military. Uh, you know, they, they did see some function. They thought it was not that uh, powerful and not that useful. And also radar sets were, were very, very large. I mean, you, you needed a truck or two trucks to transport them. So the idea you could make radar that you could put in the nose of an aircraft and use it to hunt submarines in the Atlantic, that seemed like preposterous science fiction at the end of 1940. In early 1942, that is what helped to turn the tide of the battle in the Atlantic, um, the Americans and, and, the, and the British against German uh, submarines. And, and that was a, a and, and convincing the Navy to go all in on this technology, that was a, a big breakthrough, both in terms of funding in the day and adoption of technology, but also, of course, what we now call the military industrial complex. So nothing comes uh, without a price, but <laughs> yeah. the, the, the military became convinced uh, during that period. Um, and, and this was further emphasized by the atomic bomb and of course by rockets. The Germans developed a V-1 and a V-2 rocket that had uh, a, a, an application of flight technology that, that nobody else in the world had at that point. That combination, I, I would say, really convinced the American military that the future of war and the future of defense and the future of national security ran right through technology and technology development. And they put a lot of money and, and resources and, and careful thought into some of the big frontier technologies, putting nuclear reactors on submarines, incredibly difficult tasks, which the, the Navy did uh, successfully, building a, a rocket program, which however you might feel about that in terms of international implications, technologically, it's incredible. Uh, and, and a lot of the, uh, what we now think of as being um, massive computation power and, and, and high-speed computation, you can trace back to Project Whirlwind and other efforts to build um, computer systems that could manage um, tracking of incoming enemy bombers um, took a lot of effort. Those systems never worked fully and properly, but they did generate enormous amount of business for IBM and for other contractors, and, and they turned that into commercial products. So not all of this is linear. Not all of it goes directly from, here's my idea, five, five months later, five years later, we're, we're creating, bringing a product to market. But in terms of generating technological knowledge, in terms of becoming the engineering and science hub for the world, which America was not, it, it was a strong science engineering place. It was not the world's number one science power uh, before 1940. After um, 1950, the US wins 
Nobel Prizes disproportionately because this is where the research uh, takes place. Could we talk a little bit more about, I guess, the military sector? You, you brought up this very interesting phrase, the military industrial complex, which in today's political discourse often carries a very uh, negative connotation when people think about all the lobbyists of, of Raytheon or, or Lockheed Martin. And um, we, we know very famously, um, I, th I think it was last year or the year before, when Google decided to you know, retract itself uh, from the, the Pentagon project be, uh, because the employee protests. And, and these days, uh, the companies that work uh, with the defense industries, such as Palantir, such as Endura, a lot of those Silicon Valley private companies often get a lot of you know, backlash and, and their founders are often seen as right-wing or libertarian and, and so on. So it, it seems that the, the public's perception of military's role in, in uh, dealing with technological innovation has shifted a bit, has it? We, we still spend so much money on a military budget and are, are they no longer leading uh, meaningful technological innovations or? Well, the public per perception did shift, Tiger, but it shifted a long time ago in the 1960s with the Vietnam War. And, and uh, you know, we should remember um, with, with perhaps some horror that two of the major innovations of the 1960s or um, applications in the 1960s were napalm and Agent Orange, which were both terrifying uh, weapons. And, and I think that what you're talking about in terms of current event is, is a further reflection on something that we probably should have should do more of and probably should have started longer ago, which is thinking hard about the responsibility of the scientists and the engineers who work on projects. Because once you invent something, it is roughly speaking impossible to uninvent it. Uh, and, and this is something that the um, inventors of the atomic bomb became intensely aware of by early 1945. And, and just as a sort of historical footnote, but an important footnote, the bomb was developed, prim the primary motivation was the belief that Germany had advanced nuclear technology and an ability to uh, turn, sorry, advanced, let's call it nuclear and atomic knowledge that they could turn into an, an atomic bomb relatively easy. Now, in retrospect, when people have gone through the record, that is more controversial. But I, I've looked at the you know, historical memoranda and so on of, of key very honest people and, and they were convinced based on you know a sort of reasonable reading of, of the available evidence and, and and knowing where the top scientists were they were convinced that germany could build the atomic bomb well by early or, or let's say early spring 1945 when the americans were not yet ready to drop their bomb uh germany was was basically finished and and the idea that the germany had an atomic program um had completely faded and yet the Americans had a bomb. They, there were people who wanted to use the bomb and demonstrate its power. Japan was still in the war. Nobody ever thought, Tiger, that Japan was developing atomic weapons. And so there was then this question of, okay, is it okay to use the bomb? Why is it okay to, to use the bomb on a non-atomic power, right? And, 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 and that, that discussion, that debate, that moral dilemma and the way it was resolved, I think haunts us uh, still to today. You, you said this public discourse change uh, happened a while ago, and in the book, you, you traced out a couple uh, events and key, fig key figures. Uh, one is the John Birch Society, founded in 1958. The other is Senator Barry Goldwater's election campaign in 1964 that advocated for a small government, and then Senate Majority Leader uh, Michael Mansfield's criticism of the military due to the Vietnam War, and then there were other issues such as budgetary pressures arising from the Vietnam War and so on. And, and all this kind of laid down pressure after pressure uh, eventually culminated in the Reagan area where we uh, decreased taxes and kind of took a step back. And so was that kind of the, the era that scientific funding uh, really declined in, in America? 
Yes, absolutely. And I think you named some of the important reasons. I, I would also say, Tiger, that at least symbolically, the space program gets an assist because while the space program was an amazing success, we're going to go to the moon, we're going to put a man on the moon, we're going to do it within a decade. And, and, and it did generate um, some substantial spillovers in terms of knowledge. It was also ultimately a um, you know, self-concluding goal. All right. So we've gone to the moon. We've landed a couple of people on the moon. We've done it again. What's 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 the what's the, what's the point of, of further uh, doing this? And I think that if you tell people, look, mission oriented is fine, Tiger. And I think there's some advice. So being mission oriented, saying we're trying to achieve these things and we'll do you know whatever it takes, that that can be useful. But you should be aware that when you achieve that whatever it takes goal, people say, okay, great, so we're done, right? Whereas <laughs> we argue in the book is that yeah. um, you know somewhat unintentionally, because as I said, it came from the war effort. The um, what the Americans created and what many other countries emulated subsequently and emulate today, right? This is, this is a, a really, really big element of international competition in, in positive ways, I would argue, is the idea that creating knowledge, basic knowledge, scientific knowledge, can create technological know-how, which can then become products and services and, and generate productivity and, and give you good jobs and enable you to sell you know, um, things to the world that, 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 that makes sense that people want to buy. So... That is not some, something that's self-limiting, Tiger, or something that ends, right? So we're, we're a highly, I would argue, one of the most innovative, well, actually, without question, the most innovative nation in the history of the world. We're 330 million people. We're in a world of 7 billion going to 8 billion that need solutions, Tiger. We should be the hub of solutions and innovation for the world. You know, and when does that end? When are we done? I have no idea. I mean, clearly not for 100 years or more. Um, and, and yet that... that positioning and that conceptualization of the, of the value and the function, why are we doing this? Why are we supporting this? What's the deal with these universities? Why do these universities get all this money, right? Why are we letting in foreigners to work in these universities? That, that narrative, I think, has been completely lost. It was, it was never perhaps as articulated as, 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 as it could have been, even in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but it's, it's totally faded away and it got squeezed out by these other narratives like we need small government or federal government can't organize things properly or these other stories that are wrong, but still took hold. Because even tracing back to Van Bush's time, I mean, he wrote this very famous paper, 1945 report titled Science, The Endless Frontier, which you cited in the book. And that was really important because World War II finished and he recognized that this is endless frontier. You, you need to keep funding sciences and not just uh, for the purpose of, of defeating the Nazis. And, and that was the end. And you brought up the hu Human Genome Project, which I think we should really come to right now because uh, it began in 1990 and it cost around $3 billion in federal funding. But by 2004, the total stock market value of the genomics sector was around $28 billion in value. And there are all kinds of uh, innovations and, and ways we can, we can measure the success. But the, the Human Genome Project really started as, as just in a, investing in, in fundamental science research. Uh, but then it, it literally opened up the entire sector of genomics uh, and, and DNA sequencing and, and all kinds of therapies. Uh, right. And, and look, I think at least in the, in the minds of some of the founders of that field, all of that potential, at least in general terms, was, was evident to them. But you needed to have the basic investments first and you needed to um, not be chasing a, a, an immediate return on capital in the first five to 10 years. And, and that's what they did. I mean, it's, it's a it's a remarkable achievement. By the way, if your listeners are spotting a, a, a link 
between the Endless Frontier report of 1945 and the Star Trek Final Frontier in the mid-1960s. <laughs> they're, they're, they are paying attention because that's, that's exactly the same. That's a reflection, that Star Trek moment, which is a very idealistic science-driven future, if you think about it. It doesn't even have money in, that, in, in the economy uh, that, that, that Gene Roddenberry created. That, that is, is very much the promise of 1945. Now, maybe they were over-promising a bit. I mean, you could, you could have that discussion. But certainly the idea that technology and science can create a better future for everyone, that is something that people, many, many people believed for, for some decades. And, and then we lost our way. Uh, perhaps it would be nice to now dive into a little bit about the, the difference between public and private funding, because it was really interesting. We actually, I actually interviewed uh, the found, one of the co-founders of the Human Genome Project, George Church. He was on the show last Friday, and he was telling me the story about how he founded the project. And he was saying, we, we were really trying to get funding and the private sector wouldn't give us funding because it didn't seem like there seems to be like an endless journey where we spend so much money and we only sequenced a little part of this thing. And then uh, we had to go to Congress and Congress actually made it sort of a permanent budgetary item for uh, the following few years so that they could make sure that the project continue on. And you talked a lot in this book uh, where the private sector is especially exemplified by venture capitalist uh, firms, VC firms nowadays, they have a short time horizon for their investments and therefore uh, they don't sometimes have the kind of patience uh, that the public sector uh, investments have. So would you mind uh, telling us a little bit more about that tension over there? Well, I think you just explained it very well yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is about time horizon. It is about patient capital. Look, not against venture capital. Venture capital is, is very powerful um, in, in its influence and, and sometimes can, can be quite positive. Um, but obviously, it's, it's driven by um, being, you know, able to generate a return to a return for investors within, you know, typically a seven year time horizon. Um, and and the government uh, has the ability to to look Beyond that, now, by the way, so do some philanthropists. So, uh, Bill Gates uh, or um, you know other other people who who talk about and put money into um, into science, and and most billionaires have some scientific projects at this point. That, that, that they also have a long time horizon. In fact, the reason they do it and the reason they explain why they're doing it is saying, "I, Bill Gates, can look beyond the 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 horizon that that a, that a profit oriented fund." Uh, would want to take with regard to eradicating um, malaria, for example. And I'm willing to back the technologies and the, the acquisition of knowledge that will support that. Yeah, that's great. The prone problem is that Bill Gates, for all his massive wealth, is small compared to the, to the federal government. So uh, the, the, um, the scale of resources that can be mobilized and the extent of impact to the number of scientists that can be put to work is vastly greater in in the if you pursue the federal government route than any than even than even if all the scientifically inclined philanthropists in the world got together and pooled their money, um, you know you're a hundred or a thousand times difference just just in a given year. Um, so I, I think that the um, the point uh, of of the and the lesson from the Human Genome Project is exactly, you know, when good ideas are on the horizon or appear to be to have become feasible. Um, you know, take a good long look at them and think about how the public sector can support the generation of useful knowledge um, from, from that science. And then, you know, be generous about that support, but also push people to, to be useful um, and make sure that the federal government gets an appropriate piece of the upside is, is also what I would say. And that you generate good jobs for, for many people and jobs um, which, which can be filled um, or make sure people have the skills to fill the jobs of the future. I think that there's, there's a very important matching there. And that, that was articulated very clearly in the 1958 National Defense Education Act, which um, itself was, was a, an, an important and coherent part of the 
American reaction to the Soviet launch of Sputnik, the first um, artificial satellite in 1957, the Americans responded with more R&D for satellites, more money for rockets, and education, Tiger, including a lot of financial aid for lower income people to go to school, um, high school and particularly college, and, and get a scientific education. Um, and and that, I think we need to do a lot more of that again. Before we talk about uh, the public policy front in terms of how we can, uh, you know, spur this kind of uh, willingness to, to fund public projects again, I, I wanted to dive in a little bit more about the constraints of Silicon Valley, because you wrote this very interesting subtitle of this chapter, uh, Into the Valley of Death, <laughs> when we talk about uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about uh, why the VC industry uh, it, it's not that they're not fueling the frontier of, of, of research or, or a technological innovation per se, but it seems that they're just not doing enough. But to a lot of people, when they hear about the Silicon Valley, they, they really see it as the frontier of leading technological innovation. And they often have this image of the government saying the government shouldn't pick winners and losers. It should be up to the private uh, equity funds and venture capitalists. Right. Well, again, this is about time horizon. So it's a question of if, if your uh, enterprise is capital intensive and you can get a very quick return, the venture capitalists might be interested. If it's not capital intensive, and you get a quick return, they're super interested. But if it's capital intensive and it's going to take longer for it to play out, uh, then, you know, the venture capitalists are going to say, well, we need to get a return on seven years, 10 years at the maximum um, for our for our investors. And they're going to not be willing to to support it. Um, you know, I, I think there's a balance, Tiger, to be honest. We, we are not saying that the government should be picking, literally picking all the winners. What we're saying is the government should back ideas and build a, a bigger, uh, better funded portfolio of research and, and um, use all the capacities available around the country to plug into that and to generate that kind of knowledge and help people uh, build the infrastructure that will commercialize products and services. But I think at some point, the private sector does need to step up and uh, make investments and take risks. And that balance just needs to be addressed. We, we've shifted the balance too much towards just cheerleading the private sector and, and not enough uh, on the public side of, of knowledge creation, opportunity creation, and, and supportive education. Professor Johnson, just to push back a little bit, because I brought up, uh, uh, I, I screenshotted some parts of your book uh, to some of my friends who, who work in Silicon Valley, and they uh, brought up a very interesting counter-argument, which is that uh, if you do really want to be truly generate the kind of outsized returns that you, you need to in, in the future, because nowadays, low interest rates, so much capital flowing around, every, there's, there's so many VCs and private equity funds, now everybody can raise a fund now, but they're really looking for uh, the founders and it's entrepreneurs that are being scarce. So if, if you truly have a great idea, such as a way to solve climate change or a new innovation for biotech, uh, you can probably get the kind of patient capital that you need. And, and, and if you're an investor who really needs to make that kind of return and be differentiated and, and, and have a long lasting legacy, you would need to create something that is different, not just invest in some random HR SaaS software anymore. So, so one could say that in today's environment, because we're seeing the urgent challenges of climate change, of economic inequality, uh, of healthcare and so on, the, the frontier is, and the incentive is very much there for people to, to, to be patient and invest in, 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 in breakthrough companies. Do you agree with that uh, observation slash narrative? 
Well, it's it's certainly an encouraging story, Tiger. I'm not opposed to it. I think, however, there is still the appropriation of knowledge point of view. So let's say I come to you and say, look, Tiger, I've got this amazing geoengineering uh, solution, and it's a a large investment, but we're going to be able to capture a lot of carbon, and we're going to be compensated in some fashion uh, for this. I think you're going to say to me, that's that's great, Simon, um, but, you know, how confident are we that we, as the investors, are going to benefit from this, as opposed to um, you know, you generating knowledge that will be shared across the sector and um, benefit, you know, many other people. So uh, COVID is an interesting example, actually, Tiger. So I've done a lot of work in the past year on COVID, um, you'd say innovation and mitigation measures, including around testing. And, um, you know, the sharing of knowledge across labs, between labs and end users like schools or um um, childcare or nursing homes. I mean, th- this is this is incredibly important, and this is a big part of what we've done. We do it completely for free. We do it just to try and help people. It's a pandemic, after all. Um, and you, it's remarkable the frictions that that would otherwise exist. Where people say, "Well, I don't know. You know, we should be licensing this, or you know, is th- this belongs to us or not?" I'm like, guys, it's a pandemic. People are dying. Let's just share the knowledge, build better solutions, and and get out of this. And I, I think that. Um, the private, but we work with the private sector, Tiger. I mean, look, a lot of these labs were, you know, for-profit uh, genomics ventures or, or non-profit genomics ventures that still care about the bottom line. And uh, there are many other people in and around the, the testing space who do um, make money for their investors in, in some fashion. And I'm fine with all of that. I just find that if you leave private enterprise to its own devices, it, it doesn't um, develop fast enough. It doesn't think enough about the social interest because it's not their job, right? It's not the job of any private investor to enrich society. Their job or their function or their role or whatever, you want to, whatever your terminology you want to use is to enrich themselves. And they're going to focus on themselves. And, and that's, what they're going to, that's the conversation they want to have when an entrepreneur comes to them. Uh, you know, I'm with regard to COVID, I and my colleagues are not interested in individual enrichment um, or even any particular company making money. We just want to find better solutions and then share that information as broadly and as widely uh, as possible. So I, I think with, with all due respect to your friends, who I, I hope they all become billionaires backing important um, solutions that, that mitigate climate change, I, I think there are, I, I think what we're talking about is complements, not substitutes. I think the public R&D spending will help them and people like them in, in their in their ventures. Uh, and it, it does, I think, also, you know, the way you frame that does remind us that we should be cognizant of the incentives and think about which way the sort of innovative trains are uh, running and try to make sure that the private sector itself is also focused on some of those big social issues like, like climate change. Uh, I precisely actually asked you this question uh, when you were speaking at the Julius Rabinowitz Center's uh, annual conference like two weeks ago. Uh, this this question about um, private sectors incentive, not incentivized to work on the most urgent problems. And, and your response back then was about precisely uh, complementarity, which is to use the public sector to bring in innovations uh, that can help spur moral, more uh, innovations in the private sector. Uh, so would, would you mind telling us a little bit more what, what that could possibly look like in a, in a realistic sense? So are there certain types of projects that the, the government should really fund? Uh, what's, what would that picture look like? Sure. Well, I mean, take uh, immunology, uh, for example, and development of vaccines. That's a very concrete uh, example. 
vaccines, as, as, as I'm sure many of your uh, listeners, uh, your audience will know, have been chronically underinvested in because they're not a high profit uh, item. And m most of the market is about government procurement of vaccines uh, one, way or, one way or another. Um, the knowledge that uh, made possible the Moderna breakthroughs and the technology, the German technology used by Pfizer, that has a very deep, uh, very deep roots in, in public funding. Now, I do think that uh, consequent to the um, rather clear and powerful demonstration this technology works, uh, these guys are going to be able to create all kinds of products um, that will not necessarily need the same degree of, of government support. So from this foundational um, and, and long-lived and, and rather underappreciated public commitment to vaccine development, we got a, both an immediate response this year that, you know, thank goodness that came within a year rather than over five years, right? Um, but I think we will also get subsequent spin-offs, and there'll be other applications of the same kinds of um, knowledge and technology. So that's how it should work. Uh, and, and I don't think anyone's proposing that the government should make all the vaccine or the government, should, not in this country anyway, the, the government should somehow control entry into vaccine development. No, we want competition and we want private capital uh, to, to be involved and we want people to take risks. And I think this is what your Silicon Valley uh, friends are um, saying that they want to do and good, they should. Uh, but we want to drive that, I think, Tiger, towards socially important applications like eradication of disease or, or prevention of, of, of pandemics. I, I would say also, uh, Tiger, the, this, this has been a bit more messy and may not yet be so clear to people, but there's an entire industry of low-cost clinical diagnostics that is now emerging and is, is going to be, I think, with us for a very long time, and, and, and that will have many positive uh, benefits, primarily because it, it, was, it was instigated and motivated by the response to COVID. Now, not all of those technologies could be brought to market uh, fast enough to have a maximum effect against COVID. But you know what? It, there are still many other diseases uh, which you could use them against. And there are the, the, the threat of the pandemics is, is obviously um, going to be with us for a long time. Do you think this kind of public-private partnership uh, is, is realistic in today's discourse? I ask that because certainly there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley who, who don't work on urgent problems. But even a lot of those who do work on urgent problems, they, there's a sense of a distrust towards government, right? They say, we're here to move fast and break things. And the only reason that we need to do this is because the government couldn't do this. And, and what the government really created for us a lot of times is regulation. So a lot of people say uh, it's, it's only because of the oil and gas subsidies that the government has been giving. Um, that is the main, one of the main reasons why the renewable sector has not been able to take enough. Uh, the, the, one of the reasons why nuclear sector hasn't been able to take off is precisely because the government regulations on nuclear and, and so on. So Silicon Valley people really view uh, the, the East Coast, you know, Washington people with, with kind of skepticism. Sure, and that's fine. You know, I think there's some healthy competition or friction uh, there. Uh, I mean, everything they're using in terms of digital computers came from, you know, Bell Labs and, and, and the war effort, and it came from IBM, and it, and it came from uh, DARPA, uh, which pushed for the early development of the internet. So, you know, I, I think that they're standing on the basis of uh, what was created by public investment, and I'm just proposing to do more of that. <laughs> so that will help them. I don't quite see what the problem is. You know, it, it's an interesting question, Tiger, I think slightly unrelated as to whether we always want people to move fast and break things. Well, it depends what you're breaking, and it depends on whether uh, it can be fixed subsequently. And I think um, 
to your earlier point that you made some some minutes ago about um, Google employees not wanting to participate in um, what was reportedly weapons-related uses of artificial intelligence. Yeah. I think that's an interesting example, right? Where if once you create it, what you know, into whose hands will that technology fall? And I think if we're talking about um, firms or, or sets of people that have unique creative capacity, that's something they need to think about perhaps harder now um, than, than in the past. I mean, uh, the idea that Facebook, for example, has been used for manipulation of uh, public opinion through fake this, that, and the other, I think that's by now well-established. What are the policy implications? What are the implications of regulating Facebook or, or media or anything else? That's a, those are still open questions. But the idea that technology can be used for better outcomes or for worse outcomes I mean, I think that should be pretty obvious to everyone right now. Can we maybe talk a little bit more about the moral tension here? Because um, my friends and I were just debating this today, which is that it is very, as you were saying, uh, research back in uh, the 1940s and 30s about quantum mechanics really led to the invention of nuclear weapons. So, and, and also what we saw is like the invention of social media or artificial intelligence led to um, very much reshaping the way public uh, discourse happens today. So, so in, in some way, as a scientist, as an AI researcher, you cannot just uh, work in your own bubble and say, I'm just working on my own innovation and not worry about the, the social impact later. But, but on the other hand, a lot of people in Silicon Valley, a lot of libertarians would say, I should not be in a position to make judgments on whether I, I should be providing my technology to whom or, or, or not. So the, the founder of Palantir, Alex Karp, he made this argument, which is that uh, it should be a democratic decision or vote or discussion whether uh, what kind of technology Palantir gives to uh, ICE or, or CIA or, or FBI. I, I should not be the one like Google making this kind of normative judgment on whether I supply my technology to the US government or not. So he was very much against um, this idea that Google employees would single-handedly decide uh, what what kind of technology to supply to the U.S. government or not? So, uh, do, do you have any any thoughts on, on this kind of debate? Uh, I mean, this is probably another part aspect of the public-private partnership. Uh. Look, I, I think the democratic democratic control and democratic debate is very important, and that's true for innovations coming from the private sector and also from the public sector. By the way, where a lot of weapons technology is, is developed, more conventional weapons. Um, you know, it, it is a very interesting and, and quite old debate, at least it goes back to the atomic scientists. I think they're the ones who first woke up to the fact, Tiger, that while you could just say, well, the politicians can decide, it's up to them. Actually, there's usually a core, a relatively small core of experts who really understand what could happen and who are in a position to explain to the public the real possibilities and the constraints and the dangers. And, you know, I think everyone has to decide this for themselves, but anybody who it is interesting that there are people in this country who say they're all about individual responsibility. And yet when you ask them to take responsibility or you ask them if they want to take responsibility for uh, monumentally impactful things like what they invent, they say, well, no, that's on the government. <laughs> that's how other people. You get what you pay for, I think. In, in this and let us not forget also, Tiger, that uh, at least the best of my knowledge, there is no significantly sized company in the United States that doesn't spend a lot of money um, lobbying and, and, and influencing and persuading. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea that legislation drops like manna from heaven, you know, without anything to do with it, but that, that is, I mean, maybe there is a world in which that's true. It's not this world. So 
these people are all players. And, and if you create big companies with lots of money and, 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 and convincing stories and powerful investors, you know, you're a player in Washington. Of course you are. Let's not be naive. And so I, I you know, I, I think that um, the only, this is not, this is obviously I'm not against innovation. I'm in favor of innovation. I mean, I'm arguing for a lot more innovation, but I think um, individual responsibility and owning the consequences of what you invent um, is, um, that's how history will judge us all. And I, and I think that's something that we should all think about um, harder than we have perhaps in the recent past. So it sounds like Professor Johnson, you are not a big fan of the narrative that technology is just neutral. Technology absolutely has an impact on, on things. Well, not only is technology not neutral, Tiger, I think technology can either be many technologies, big technologies, certainly, atomic technology, um, computers, human genome, and artificial intelligence. I mean, those are just four ones that come immediately to mind. They could all be used relative, for relative good, and you can define good in various ways, but let's say, you know, sharing prosperity and making sure you, your disease goes down and, you know, all kids get decent education. Uh, it, it can either be used for, for good or it can be used for massive destruction, right? And, and, and that was obviously very clear with, with, with the atomic bomb uh, invention. But, the, you know, social media, Tiger, we could say, um, remember social media was believed um, when, it, when it first arrived on the scene to be a, a great enhancement of uh, free data flow and, and really enabling people to not only share opinions in, in a decentralized way, but also to mobilize right? the Arab Spring, right? Which was um, Facebook and, and, and Twitter were regarded as being helpful um, to that. Um, and, and yet now we, we find that those, that's the very same technology and those same tools in those same countries um, becomes an instrument of power, an instrument of authoritarian rule. Uh, so, I mean, certainly the historical record says technology is not neutral. Now, is it, is it, are there conscious decisions that we can make as scientists, as voters, as political leaders, as whatever, can we control technology and shape it to be more beneficial or less beneficial? I, I, I say categorically yes to that, but you know, maybe, maybe there's some more discussion to be had that, and, and surely push, people push back on, on anything, including that. Based on our discussion uh, over the last 30 minutes or so, there, there's another idea I want to quickly explore with you, which is the idea of opportunity cost. I was, I've been talking a lot of my Princeton friends, uh, and, and obviously right now in, in Silicon Valley, there, there's this narrative that uh, surely we need to tackle issues like climate change, but surely we should also work on new forms of social media, entertainment, uh, just having fun or consumer goods. And, and a lot of my friends in Princeton have, have basically said that's really not true because there's a great opportunity cost because every dollar you spend in, in investing in the next uh, consumer entertainment app, uh, you, could have, you could have devoted that resource uh, to more fundamental scientific research, uh, more urgent issues to address economic inequality and climate change. So uh, th there's a great opportunity cost. There's, uh, which side of the debate do you kind of see yourself leaning towards? Do you think that, that Silicon Valley um, or, or in some way market should, should be left uh, on, on its own in, in some way to, to allocate resources? Or, or do you think we need sort of a more of a push to, to tell the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and VCs and so on and say, guys, you have a, a kind of a social responsibility to devote your resources uh, to the urgent issues. That, that there's a normative uh, sort of th uh, element embedded to your investments. Yeah, I don't think they'll listen to that. <laughs> same time, Tiger, uh, it, it's not like there's a fixed pot of capital. And if you put $10 into something frivolous, 
that's ten dollars you can't put in something fundamental no on the contrary i think you can have it all um the constraint is actually more likely to be the number of scientists and engineers to which my recommendation would be hey let's give more people access to an affordable education give them the skills and and the incentive to 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 to, to really participate in that um and those forms of creativity and innovation i think there's there's no limit to people in the united states or even around the united states uh, sorry around the world uh, who'd like to participate in that, in, in that um, in innovative innovative machinery. Now, in terms of incentives, though, I, I do think we should be um, quite deliberate about the fact that there, there are multiple ways you can um, shape or incentivize people to go in certain directions. You can do it with taxes, of course. You could tax some things more than other things. That's not something that's particularly popular um, in the United in the modern United States. Or you can um, put public money in. So the point of the public R&D push is in part exactly to create more knowledge around certain areas. And this is what the National Institutes of Health has done very successfully since the 1940s. So by, by really pushing hard on certain frontiers, you open various new possibilities and people can build drug companies, therapy companies, vaccine companies on the basis of that um, so I think public investment as the platform to encourage private innovation and to encourage uh, job creation, that's the approach that I would take, Tiger, which is a win-win approach. It's not saying you, I mean, I would never say you can't do whatever you want to do in terms of investments around entertainment, but I'm saying that if we're pushing harder on more of the basic science that can be useful for some of the larger social problems we're trying to tackle, that is going to pull more talent in to take advantage of those opportunities. I'm glad you brought up the role of scientists. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about education and, and the role of scientists. Be um, I was listening to this discussion uh, between economist uh, Tyler Cowen, Mark Zuckerberg, and there's uh, Stripe CEO, uh, pa Patrick Collison. And Tyler Cowen uh, brought up a really interesting idea, which is that uh, the institutions uh, of tenure, uh, academia, have really not evolved over the past 50 years or so. So in, in some way, the, the current system of academia has not uh, done its job generating the kind of uh, uh, intellectual power or, or as, as many intellectual, as much intellectual power as, as we would like to see. Uh, whereas in the private sector, you know, companies and, and, and systems and networks are constantly forced to innovate. So you've worked in policymaking, you are currently a professor at MIT. So uh, from your lens inside the academia, do you think academia itself, uh, whether it's the Kind of incentives in academia uh, or, or the tenure selection structure where people in academia uh, are they incentivized to, to work on uh, urgent issues or more or less working on marginal improvements of, of existing knowledge uh, just just to get tenure <laughs> as, as some would that's a very stylized view of how universities work i mean yes yes <laughs> mostly they're they're intensely competitive people are competing for funding people are trying to build labs and try to have impact so you know, you know, is there other ways to change tenure to, to alter that? I guess potentially is tenure a big part of the problem or a break on innovation? I don't think so. Not in any way that, that we've, that we've seen. Um, I, I think funding is much more of the issue and also uh, whether you bring more places into the mix. So one aspect we haven't talked about Tiger, a very important part of the book is that, um, if you look at the concentration of innovation on the on the east coast and on the west coast, it, it is much higher than in any than than we had in any uh, cluster of of previous um, 
innovations, you know, the importance of Detroit and the car for car companies or or the um, development of Chicago or development of other other places, um, LA or Houston. We've always been relatively diverse. We've always had multiple centers. We've never had this big run up in house prices relative to other places, not, not to the same degree. And, you know, I think you have to ask the question, do we, is it really helpful to concentrate so much productive, so much innovative activity in a few places like San Francisco? Um, and, and our answer in the book is no. I mean, you can spread, usually spread that around. There's lots of people who, who either live other parts of the country, would like to live other parts of the country, and you can plug more people into the innovation uh, machinery. And that's a good way to have um, more impact for your, for your federal dollars. So I, I think those are the constraints, not, not um, the particular institutional arrangements in, in universities. Professor Johnson, maybe we should jump into this idea of, of spreading out more resources because I, I, it's, it's, it's in the first page, even before the first page of your book, you showed this map, uh, which is 102 places for jumpstarting America. And uh, you and Professor Gruber really went into the detail regarding how you exactly you picked those cities. Would you mind telling us a bit uh, why you see 102 uh, potential new innovation hubs in America? Yeah, so we put all our data and our methodology on our website, jumpstartingamerica.com, and people can go there and play with the index. And if they don't like uh, the weights that we put on various variables, they can make their own index. But basically, we looked at, um, you know, education level, in existing innovative capacity, in including patents. We, we looked at the uh, quality of life, including crime and real estate prices. And, and, we, and we looked at, you know, the strength of the local universities and, and other uh, factors around that. So all the elements that people that we can measure that people regard as being um, positive contributors to innovation clusters. And if you look at it that way, sure, that there are, you know, the big places like San Francisco and Boston do well. But there's lots of other places that look uh, remarkably uh, strong, at least in terms of potential. And, and that's our point, which is that, you know, it, it is... Um, uh, a kind of a blinkered view to say there's only a couple of places where you can start a company or a couple of places where you can invent stuff in the United States. Th those places do tend to get disproportionate attention, disproportionate capital. So we're proposing to redress that balance. But there's lots of places around. It's a very big country with a lot of talent that's dispersed, and we should be taking advantage of that. It's really interesting because you brought up this idea uh, at the Julius Rabinowitz Center conference. You said that government capability below the federal level is very limited. So on the federal level, there are some very dramatically different philosophies, but you know, on, on the local level, you, you have been talking to lots of mayors and local government officials, both in the process of working on this book and I imagine during COVID crisis. So would you mind giving us a little bit more of a contrast between what the federal government level people, policymakers are thinking, what local governments people are thinking, and also uh, there, there are different capacities in, in pushing for this innovation hub? Well, I mean, one difference is, is at the local uh, level, there's much less polarization of views around this topic, for example, so that uh, most mayors and, and, and governors and people who work in that state apparatus that we've met um, want the same thing, which is more good jobs. And they want to make investments, public investments that will help um, catalyze private sector uh, employment. And, and that's, you know, I've had, I've had plenty of conversations with people where I didn't bother to look up in advance if they were Democrats or Republicans. And subsequently, I'm like, Okay, was that a Democrat, Republican? I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Um, so that that's one thing. I think in terms of the uh, capacity and capability, only the federal government has the fiscal firepower to really move the needle here, uh, and that's something we have to be aware of. And and 
you know, take seriously. So it's federal policy that can really boost areas of science and generate new fields for um, research and breakthrough uh, innovations. State and local, even, even the best finance of them can't do that. So if we do want to create this 102 innovation hubs, would it, does it mean that it has to be a little bit more federally uh, led slightly more top down because uh, one really interesting example you cited is the Amazon headquarter two example when when Amazon threw out the bid and said everybody can come here and and uh, you know basically give us proposals regarding what kind of tax breaks you can give us and it just became a bottoms down deregulatory race uh, that you weren't a big fan of. Yeah, race to the bottom is what. Yes, people... race to the bottom. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, mostly tax breaks. Mostly, what these firms want is they want tax breaks, uh, and states give away about fifty billion dollars a year in tax breaks to firms that, most of which would have um, undertaken the same investment in the same place anyway without the tax break. That's what the research says. So um, yes, what we're what we're specifically encouraging in the book is uh, a race to the top and public federal dollars being. Uh, offered to places uh, in return for them committing to build up, to make their own local investments and, and build up matching capabilities, including in education, including in infrastructure, including in, in whatever else would, would, would be necessary and helpful. So that um, partnership between levels of government, I think, is an important part of what we're proposing. And, and using that same competitive um, mindset that Amazon used, but using it for a win-win. I mean, the federal government is not asking state and local to cut taxes. They're asking them to make co-investments. And, and, and I think that, that's, that would be a big difference if we could get to that. Would you mind telling a little bit more about the policy uh, implications there? Um, because you said that a lot of times local governments give those big tax breaks, but uh, the research has shown that companies would have done uh, built there and, and, and do business there anyways. Uh, but I guess from a local mayor or state governor's perspective, it's still very hard for them uh, to pull out of this mindset that they have to go down this race to the bottom. It seems, seems to be like a collective action problem. So uh, will we see some kind of political um, collaboration, coordination between different states and say together, we're not going to do this uh, race to the bottom thing again? Is that realistic? I, I, but there's no signs of that, Tiger, no signs of the states spontaneously coming together to agree not to compete for business um, by, by, by giving out tax breaks. Now, the point is that the, use the federal money to encourage the states to invest and use their tax revenues for a different purpose, which is, you know, let's say, build up technical universities, producing graduates who have the skills necessary to work in the sectors that you're going to be um, developing in that area. So looking, encouraging co-investment and persuading state and local, that's a better way to generate, you know, good, well-paying jobs that are going to be, um, stay with you as international competition develops. That's, that's our proposal. A very interesting connection between politics and science that you put uh, in the book is that scientists have arguably moved to the left and the political spectrum has shifted to the right in ways not favorable to supporting unfettered scientific research uh, and this kind of implication. So uh, how have the political views of, of scientists influenced policy and decisions uh, for public investments? Why do you say that the scientists have shifted to the left and, and the political discourse shifted to the right? 
Um, well, in the 1930s, a lot of scientists, including the ones who really initiated the um, the big federal push into R&D, were conservatives. They were uh, Republicans. They didn't like uh, FDR's New Deal. And they came to the idea that the federal government should be proactive and put dollars in with some reluctance and only in the face of this massive uh, global war that was developing around the U.S. And, and, and um, in face of the fact that, that some of the some of the potential enemies, including Germany, were apparently quite advanced in terms of technology and in applying technology to the weapons of war. So that was then, I mean, now obviously the, the debates are quite different and, and there's a lot of issues, for example, around climate change, where if you look at the polling, uh, the scientists are strongly uh, supporting the idea that human action has changed the climate and substantial significant changes in policy are necessary to redress that. And that's that view, for example, is not one shared by many uh, conservatives. So uh, I think on, on, on so other similar issues of substance, the, the, the scientists are um, to the left of where they were. And as you said uh, a little while ago, the, um, the shift in American politics towards this kind of small government and government should keep its hands off my business and the Reagan era, that has moved um, the center of gravity in American politics to the right if we define left right in terms of how much should the federal government do what is the federal government capable of doing do you see that consensus shifting a little bit in light of covid um, especially uh, today i mean we're, we're seeing 1.9 trillion dollar package going through arguably the economic consensus the economic orthodoxy of uh, the, the old age of austerity has somewhat uh, been replaced by this keynesian consensus today in in, in terms of uh, at, at least um, in stimulus packages. Um, well, th that package got zero Republican votes in the Senate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, I, th I think, though, uh, COVID, COVID is, has some special characteristics. I think a really a bigger question which is coming up is when infrastructure um, is brought to Congress, uh, it, it infrastructure package, there'll be an infrastructure spending uh, package, um, which will be discussed and, and, and voted on presumably in the coming months. We will see how that breaks out, Democrats versus Republicans. There are plenty of Republicans who, when you talk to them in private, will say that they believe um, investing in, in research and development for national security purposes uh, is important. And, they, and, and there are people who bring up um, and emphasize actually much more than we did in the book, the fact that China is investing heavily in R&D. And some people see that as requiring you know, at least a matching response from the United States in terms of um, investment in similar capabilities. And maybe there are ways to um, move ahead um, of other nations in terms of that kind of investment. So the idea that R&D is, is tied up with sustainable national pr prosperity and viable national defense, cyber uh, warfare, for example, right? Links straight back to computer capabilities. Um, that those, those issues, you can have a very, a very good uh, private discussion on both sides of the aisle in Washington, D.C. What happens in terms of how people vote remains to be seen. But public voting is a different matter often. It, it sounds like, um, I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like uh, Republicans and conservatives are, are somewhat to blame in this process. Would you, would you say, are, are they the ones preventing more public investments uh, or, or, or this vision of jump-starting America that, that you are seeing? 
Well, I mean, right now there are people, uh, there's a legislation, bipartisan legislation called the Endless Frontiers uh, Act, which um, has Democrats and Republicans supporting it. So I don't think we can say Republicans are blocking anything like that yet. I mean, let's see how the vote plays out. And I do think, Tiger, also that the, um, the consensus across both sides of the aisle shifted from the 1960s to now or the 2010s um, away from federal support for R&D. So that's the main reason we wrote the book was to try and push that, that consensus, which had, which had been very successful and, 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 and quite robust, crumbled uh, during after the Vietnam War, drifted over to this you know, much reduced role. And we're trying to push it back the other way. And, I, and, I, and the good news is, from our perspective, that many people on the left and the right are quite receptive to that. They are receptive to different versions of the argument, but it's the same argument. I see. Um, I know we've talked like uh, around an hour about your book now. I think a slightly related topic that is a very hot debate, both in Silicon Valley and policy discourse today, is the idea of the great technological stagnation that a lot of people are, are debating. Um, you, you cite in your book from, from 1974 to 1947 to 73, Americans sort of enjoyed this unprecedented rise in standard of living, uh, real per capita GDP nearly doubled. The situation very much changed since the 1970s. From 73 to 2018, the real per capita GDP grew only by 1.7% per year on average, which is a dramatic decline. And there are other uh, ways to, to measure this. Peter Thiel once said, you know, mean wage went up 350% during the period you cited, but then only 22% from 73 to 13. So th there's really not that much to redistribute because wealth creation has basically stagnated in many ways. So. Uh, do you think that we are in somewhat of a technological stagnation or at least a periodic stagnation of innovations and, and therefore we need this push of jumpstarting America? I think stagnation is too strong a term. There's definitely been a productivity slowdown. It's been a slowdown, as you, exactly you said, over, over many decades. In addition, there's been this widening of inequality. I mean, that's part of what lies behind the medium wage um, um, out, outcomes. So the, the point of the book, yes, was exactly to say, if you invest more in terms of public R&D, and if you structure that in the right way, um, you will get more productivity growth. And here are some additional recommendations to make sure that more people can participate in the benefits generated by that productivity growth. So yes, I, I do think that we are attempting to um, redress the balance or, or go back to um, some, of the, some aspects of the earlier and better performance uh, of the United States over the past century. Uh, it doesn't mean that I think we can live again in the 1940s or, or that we want to. It doesn't mean that uh, what we're proposing is a panacea, but it is a policy lever. And if you work um, in policy circles, uh, you'll know that um, what people are always looking for is something I can do that will have this predictable outcome and where I'll be able to manage and, 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 and monitor to make sure I don't get unintended consequences. And so increasing public commitment to R&D in fact, strike us as being uh, one, one of the more plausible and powerful levers for a longer term acceleration in productivity growth. It, it's complementary to, different from, but complementary to the $1.9 trillion package, which was directly about trying to help people who'd been really hard hit by COVID, as well as repair some of the um, immediate economic damage from the pandemic, which, would, which, was, which was enormous. So we will see, I would say, Tiger, in the next six months or so, the extent to which people can, lessons drawn from COVID, thinking about infrastructure, 
thinking about technological capacity, thinking about international competition and what other countries are doing, I think that uh, this Endless Frontiers Act, and, and, and maybe it'll be amended, maybe different versions will emerge, but that is going to be a, a very, um, you know, uh, it's going to be quite telling uh, who lines up on which side of, of the various issues there. How do you define productivity? Because I, I think for a lot of people listening, they might say, what, what do you mean uh, productivity has not gone up as quickly as I want. Right now I have Google, I have Zoom, <laughs> I have like 80 calendar apps that I can coordinate with my teams. Uh, how come productivity has decreased? Yeah, so the, look, good good questions about how to measure productivity. If anyone wants to go get a PhD in economics, I'm <laughs> working on that. Uh, I mean, the basic, the basic uh, measure of productivity is obviously output divided by uh, inputs where the, in, the interesting input is labor, the number of hours that people are, uh, have worked. And what you're saying is that there, we should uh, have some quality adjustments, um, for example, because people will bring things to my house more easily than in the past. And maybe we should, we should also worry about um, the valuation of things that are free, right? So if people are giving me things for free, then um, how do I include that in my standard productivity measures? Fair enough. Um, however, it's still the case, Tiger, as, as you said at the beginning, that Medium wages have not gone up. And when we look at uh, incomes, we can see exactly what happened, which is relatively few people at the top have done well. Most people have had this experience of stagnation. If you look at the overall size growth of the pot of incomes and what people can buy with it, it's it's slowed. And, and there's a great deal of frustration, as you know, with that slowing. And Tiger, uh, perhaps not evident to your friends in Silicon Valley, but in the rest of the country, there's a lot of uh, anxiety, angst, and even anger about failure to really um, participate in, 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 in the growth of the economy over the past 20 years. And a lot of concern about, you know, are my children going to do less well than I, I have? Because, you know, the middle class has been pretty dramatically squeezed. So th those are all um, aspects of the same underlying slowdown. Uh, th there's another a set of interesting statistics I'd love to hear your thoughts on, which is, uh, I think in, 90, uh, in the 1900s, when New York City decided to build the subway, they took them 4.7 years and to build 23 stations for a billion dollars, around a billion dollars in 2019 terms. Uh, in 2000, New York City decided to build more uh, subways. It took them 17 years to build three stations and cost $4.5 billion. So basically, productivity has decreased by a factor of 40. So it seems that there must be something institutional, sociological, or political, whatever, going on that is not just beyond the raw material or technology itself. So has our ability to collectively organize ourselves decreased? I mean, people cite the, um, I think the California high-speed railway example as, as another major failure or something. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Like what, what are the institutional factors? Yeah, our ability to build high-speed rail in this country does seem to be fine, depending on how you <laughs> high-speed you want to think about the 19th century railroads. Uh, and um, building in, in very crowded urban areas um, is 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 difficult, right? And New York has has demonstrated that. Um, I, I think, though, Tiger, this is exactly uh, part of the motivation for the regional and geographic uh, point in our book, which is there are many other parts of the United States where it's much cheaper to build things, where they're in favor of expansion, where you can work things out in terms of zoning, and and we you know recommend. Um, that including housing and maintaining housing as affordable for existing residents as an important element in economic development plans. Now, if this were a small island nation and we were all crammed together on, on a little piece of rock, 
that would be difficult, right? But it's not. It's an enormous uh, country with a lot of un unused uh, land with regard to, to this kind of development. And um, there are plenty of opportunities that can be created away from the big cities. If you crowd you know, all the innovative creative activities into a few square miles or even few square half kilometers in 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 New York City then yes you're going to get some of these crowding problems and it's going to be difficult to upgrade those systems but why are we doing that and it doesn't really make any sense so, so it seems that our ability to to organize ourselves uh especially in those high concentrated areas or or, or complex scenarios have in some way decreased I mean I, I I know that a lot of people say that humans are after all organized and led by narratives where we're all we need some kind of story to, to lead us to some sense of purpose and organize ourselves and not kill each other all the time um do, do you think the current set of narratives that we're hearing uh, are sufficient to to make ourselves uh bind together and tackle common challenges i mean some of the narratives are like climate change uh, but we also know there are very uh, strong downside risks you know such, such as um polarization misinformation all kinds of forces, systemic forces that are preventing us uh, from getting to that better narrative. So uh, what do you see as the, the urgent challenges on that front? Yes, I, I think that it's a, it's a good question. I think people do care for narratives. Narratives are important. I think um, shared prosperity could be and hopefully will be a, a, a more prominent part of that narrative. And then um, guiding technology and being responsible for how technology delivers better outcomes to people in this country and around the world. I think that's something that we we can reasonably talk about and we can make that an important part of policy. I mean, John Gruber and I are both, uh, you know, people spend a lot of time uh, around policy over decades and we're both convinced that you should prioritize um, feasible actions that will have the desired consequences. And that's why the, the we wrote the book and that's why uh, we focus on, spend more on public R&D disperse that more around the country than might be the 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 default case and um invest in the kind of education that makes sure people can get the jobs that you're going to create and and i think those are all i mean th those are all deliberate actions those are all imminently uh, doable those were all i think those will be featured to some degree in legislation that we will see pass congress relatively soon at least i hope that's the case and, and so that suggests, we, you know, there are some levers. And, you know, should we weave narratives around that? Sure, absolutely. And I think that you're quite right. Those are super important. And I do think we lost the narrative, Tiger, about science, about R&D and, and its effect on prosperity over the past 50 years. People just forgot. It was a great story. It really worked. And then people got distracted. That's okay. We can we can go back, and I and I think though, just changing the narrative is not enough. You need to put money in, and I think that's what the federal government can and 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 has done to great effect, and and needs to do more of. Are you optimistic uh, or, or or pessimistic? I I I hate to ever ask our guests to sort of box people in because I, I know this is a very nuanced thing, but um, lo looking at all the all the forces that that's playing right now today. Uh, are you optimistic that we'll, we'll get there? Uh, I'm an immigrant a tiger. So I, I came to this country. I chose this country. And um, I've always believed in the future of the United States. I, you know, I, I think I've studied enough history to know there's many ups and downs. And 
difficult and dangerous moments, and we've been through a few of those uh, not too long ago. But I think that we will find our way to a better future, and I think that technology can be harnessed more effectively. We've done that in some periods in the past. I think we should respect workers more. I think we should focus more on raising income levels at the lower end. I am encouraged by the fact that many of those ideas, versions of those ideas, um, came through in the recent um, package that passed Congress. But, but there's obviously a lot more to do and a lot more structural issues uh, to struggle with. I, um, we only have around 15, 20 minutes left. So I do want to touch on one part of your career, which is when you were uh, IMF, International Monetary Fund's chief economist, especially during a very tumultuous time back in 2007, 2008, and uh, during the global financial crisis. Uh, that was a, a very big shock to the system, to the world. And, and we saw in 2020, the COVID-19 shock. Um, how do you contrast those two shocks? Do, do you see similar lessons to, to be learned from them? Um, I know that uh, in 2020 and 2019, when you were dealing with COVID-19, you were probably in a much different position, thinking about different issues, but I would still love to hear a take on, on these crises and, and your experience from them. Well, obviously they were very different in terms of origin of the shock. And one was the result of a, a boom in which people became incautious about lending and and, and the mortgage market was the heart of it, and the other was much more of a of a shot out of out of out of the dark uh, in 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 some sense, and in, in a um, a public health crisis. I, I do think, Tiger, the, one similarity that, that may be worth uh, dwelling on, particularly in this context, is that the mechanisms that we have for reacting to crisis and for stabilizing the macro economy are substantial and they are powerful, but they do tend to tilt towards helping some people more than others. So what do I mean by that? When you when the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates, that is going to tend to help the stock market. It's going to help people. People are going to think, well, the future cash of these companies is worth more because interest rates are down and the Fed is going to do what it takes to, to, to bring back their, substantially their earnings, uh, at least indirectly. And, and that's good for some people, particularly people who own um, shares in the stock market. If you uh, were at the margins of the housing market or if you had a relatively... Um, exposed place in in in, um, in terms of your job or where you lived or lived in cramped conditions. Uh, when COVID broke, uh, you were exposed to dramatically more uh, risk, financial risk, public health risk, but catastrophic human risk. And I think also when we talk about risk, Tiger, um, and, and people often think about risk, uh, including probably the people, kind of people listen to your podcast, uh, think about risk in financial terms, meaning volatility. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. And people say to you, well, you know, you, you can, as long as you can hold on to your investments, you can ride through that volatility. You might even get compensated by higher return. That's a compensator for, for higher risk. That's true in some situations, but re remember there's another kind of risk, uh, which is the risk that you go down and don't come back. You lose the house, and you're out of the housing market as a, as a homeowner, your, your health is destroyed, your grandparents or your children die, right? And, and I think we, we have not um, thought enough about the way in which we have created automatic stabilizers or easier stabilizers that protect some people. I mean, if you could work remotely, um, as, as I have done for the past year, uh, I don't think there was any decline in my productivity. In fact, I think I did a lot more in this last year than in many other years because there was more to do, including around COVID. Um, but if, if you couldn't work remotely, if you couldn't 
maintain physical distance from everyone and you would be exposed to the disease, there were some very bad outcomes. So I think we need to think about who gets, I mean, this is an economy in which protection is provided by the federal government to people, but not to all people. It's provided to some people and it's provided, provided disproportionately to people uh, at the high end. Doesn't mean you can't blow up your personal finances if you're wealthy, obviously uh, you can. But as a, as a macroeconomic and, a, and an overall economic policy statement, or as you're saying at the level of the IMF, how do you think about the world economy and how do you think about who wins and who loses and why? These big bad shocks are terrible for income inequality. They're terrible for the outcomes of people at the lower end of the income scale. And you know, I, I think it, it's a good idea to make our systems more resilient and to make sure that when we um, develop or propose additional safety mechanisms, we can really help everyone as much as possible. Uh, you wrote a very famous piece named uh, The Quiet Cool uh, in early 2009 when it was first released in the Atlantic. It got over a million views. It was widely popular. And in the piece, you said the narrative had changed to, to consider whatever is beneficial to Wall Street must also be uh, beneficial for the whole country. And that uh, led Wall Street to take on a lot of excessive risk and, and then eventually led to the collapse. And do you think we've made a lot of progress since then, not just in terms of financial regulation, but also in terms of people's awareness, because the fact that we are talking about uh, the disparate effects of quantitative easing of Federal Reserve's actions, of uh, congressional policies, the fact that people are more aware of these redistributional effects, is that a sign uh, of progress? We're, we're do you, uh, when looking at a lot of the substances, substances uh, still feel like we have a long way to go? Well, we have made progress on some things. I think there's much more skepticism of Wall Street, more skepticism of big banks. Uh, I think most of the regulations that were put in place by the Dodd-Frank legislation of 2010 were uh, sensible and have found their way into some reasonable manifestation. Uh, it doesn't mean there aren't risks in the financial system, by the way, including the, because it's global and, and immensely uh, opaque. Um, I think you you are right that there is greater anxiety and concern about income inequality, which is a broader point than just finance. I'm not sure how much that has ch changed views around policy. We'll see. So again, the $1.9 billion attempted to address that in some part. Is it a one-off? Will we continue down that road? I don't know. Um, I think that the um, we, we are now concerned, many people are concerned about the rise in the influence of the technology sector, um, Tiger. So the so-called tech lash is a real thing and, and it's grounded in, you know, people like free internet search. I don't think many people object to that, but they worry that there are hidden costs to that or, or there are hidden, um, you know, forms of disinformation or even abusive or even predatory behavior. Uh, by companies around, you know, various uses of information technology. And I think that's, um, that's a healthy debate. And that's a fairly early debate, including in terms of thinking about what could and should be the, the policy, the policy consequences. I mean, a, a, a bigger question, Tiger, I, I would say, just going back to your point about um, the, the COVID crisis compared to earlier crises, is public health. I mean, are we still comfortable with the fact that many people in this country do not have adequate uh, access to healthcare, um, or pay an enormous amount for the healthcare, and as a result, skimp on it. Um, and and how does that add up to a resilient public health system nationally or or internationally? You know, are we really okay with the the health disparities around the world? Because we know 
that when diseases take off in one part of the world, they can spread rapidly to other places. And COVID, you know, COVID wasn't the first coronavirus. SARS-CoV-2 wasn't the first coronavirus, so why should it be the last? And it's also the mo not the most horrible form of coronavirus that could be imagined, right? So this one preyed on older people because the, the state of their immune system, but the scientists tell me it's easier to imagine another coronavirus, one that doesn't yet exist, hopefully, um, could, could prey disproportionately on, on younger people or children. Right? And that, that's really horrible. So what are we doing to prepare for that? What are we doing to get ahead of that? What are the systems that we're building. And again, I, I would link it back to science, build knowledge, be systematic. Um, you know, I, I don't think we, we want to run around screaming. I think we want to make investments and build capabilities and share knowledge with the world and, and build good companies that deliver quality products to people and, and treat their consumers fairly. I guess just to tie everything together, we, we talked about the income inequality stagnation. We talked about uh, the recent COVID financial crises. It, it seems that the U.S. Or, or the Western world in general has, has been struggling a lot uh, with income-based, fundamentally supported growth. And we turned to financialization starting maybe in the 80s or 90s. And, and it was, we saw a lot of finance-based growth and we took on a, a lot of debt. And we saw the great credit boom and rise in uh, government debt and, and household credit and so on. So it seems that we're near this end, near the end of this global debt super cycle, as some would say. And we're also in this period of great uh, financial volatility and, and, and economic volatility, and, and we're taking on more debt. So, so are you worried about that front? Are you worried about where we're headed in terms of the, the, the economic consensus or fragility of the system? Um, where, where do you see the larger macro financial trends headed in, in the next five, 10, or, or, or however many years you may have in mind? Well, I, look, I think the, the, the future depends on what we make of it, Tiger, and what we invest in and what we build and to what extent we share that with other people. So I think that's entirely in play. And I'm, I may be a bit more optimistic about this than I was a year or two years ago, but I think that, is, that history is still to be written. You know, I, I think on, on the debt point, uh, people who are concerned about debt, uh, and, I, and I did write a book about debt, we haven't talked about that much, but White House Burning was a, is a history and examination of, of um, the nature and, and change in role of public debt in federal public debt in the United States. Um, I think that the people who are focused primarily on debt and worrying about debt right now have a little bit missed the plot of the play, Tiger, which is the earth was struck by a meteor. Okay, okay, that meteor, we call it COVID, but it had this, it, 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 you know, it, it killed in this country half a million people. It, it you know, destroyed communities, it, it damaged towns, um, it, 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 it ended families. And, and so when you're struck by a meteor, do you, do you sit around saying, well, you know what, guys, an extra trillion dollars on the debt, that could be, no, I don't think so. You say, look, how do we get these people out of, out of, out of, out of these difficult places? How do we save the children? How do we get them back to school? How do we make sure more people don't die? You know, you, you fix the problem and, and you, you deal with the aftermath of the hurricane or the earthquake or the meteor strike or the pandemic. And then you can have a discussion about, OK, what are the investments we need to make to bring the economy back, to get some more jobs in because people want to work and to make sure this doesn't happen again? And, you know, I want to go for a positive return on investment things from a social perspective, as we discussed, because, you know, the government is not about maximizing private property. Profit is maximizing social social gain. So, you know, I find the debt discussion fairly baffling at this moment because a meteor struck the earth. 
a big one. Okay. And, and, you know, the reason to, I, I'm not in favor of spending endlessly and, and running up debt without limit precisely because I want there to be fiscal firepower available when there's a crisis. Well, this is the biggest crisis of our lifetimes, uh, biggest crisis of, of the lifetime of anyone currently alive. So we use spending judiciously as a way to buffer, to help people survive and to get out of this. Um, and there are many, many countries around the world, Tiger, as you know, that don't have the capability that we have and that are struggling massively and tragically uh, as, as a result. So I, I think that um, we're stumbling. We've stumbled a lot in the past year. There's no question that the last 12 months were very rough, but we're beginning to find our way out. And I think we'll do this better for ourselves. And I hope we do it better for other people uh, as well and help as many people as we can. I completely agree with uh, with everything you just said. Uh, I guess just to gradually wrap up here, uh, how can people learn more about your work? What are some of the other things uh, that, that you are working on? What are some of the other big topics on your mind uh, that you're planning to research? <laughs> well, I think all of the above that we've been talking about, uh, Tiger, the, you know, the future of... Um, Economic policy. Um, the uh, we have a, a website, jumpstartingamerica.com. We can look at those ideas. And I write a monthly column for Project Syndicate. If you Google my name, you can find various other opinion pieces I write from time to time. And I think um, there's plenty, plenty, plenty of uh, plenty, plenty of material out there. Absolutely. Uh, so the name of our show is Policy Punchline. As a longstanding tradition, we always ask our guests at the very end, uh, "What would your punchline be?" I mean could be about anything that we talked about today or, or we didn't touch on. What would be your punchline? I, I think choose your technology priorities wisely and, and be very aware that you're, those choices need to be deliberate because you are shaping your future, your children's future, your grandchildren's future. So uh, I would, I think, you know, we all need to pay much more attention to those things, uh, Tiger. And we need to find ways that policy can affect those technology choices, technology outcomes in, in a meaningful, uh, deliberate and, and decisive way. That was a wonderful punchline. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today, Professor Johnson. It, it's, it's really funny. I wanted to bring this anecdote to you. I, I had met your co-author, Professor Gruber, I, I believe two years ago when he was at Princeton attending a, a healthcare conference at the Griswold Center for Economic Policy Studies. And, and, and I asked him for an interview. He, was, he said he was really busy and he was uh, working on this book that's about to come out. And then uh, in 2019, this came out. This is actually my second copy. I, I bought my first copy and I carried it back to China with me. And I, and I this time I, I just got it again and, and read it again. So every time I'm reading it, I'm learning new stuff. So, so it's such a wonderful pleasure to be able to uh, at least interview uh, one, one of you uh, on this book. So yeah. Great. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Tiger. Really appreciate your time. Yes. Uh, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please uh, go visit policypunchline.com to, to learn more about this interview and also follow Professor Johnson's work. Again, Jumpstarting America, how breakthrough science can revive economic growth and the American dream. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you next time.